You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, we continue our study in the Shorter Catechism. We're nearing the end. There are 107 questions, and we're looking this morning at 98 and 99. So let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name and by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you are a prayer-hearing God, and that you accept our prayers through the mediation of Christ and that you delight in them and are pleased, according to your infinite wisdom, to answer them. And we ask this morning that as we consider this wonderful and important and delightful gift, that you'll help us to understand it more clearly and to appreciate it more deeply. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, prayer. Well, the question that comes before us is, what is prayer? We're defining it to begin with, and the answer given is prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. It's a pretty comprehensive definition. I think it's a good one. Um, and you'll notice there's several clauses all linked together. We're going to look at some of those. But to begin with, we understand that prayer is a gift. It's a gift that's given by God to his people. <clears throat> and it's a glorious ordinance appointed by him. And by the ordinance, that simply means of means of worship. So prayer is worship. When we pray, we are worshiping the true and living God. Thomas Watson, in his typical pithy way, says, God comes down to us by his spirit, and we go up to him by prayer. And it's a wonderful thing. Prayer is like the lifeblood of the Christian life. And if we're not praying, something is wrong. Uh, All of us go through periods of dryness. All of us miss days of prayer. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the person who doesn't pray, has no desire to pray, doesn't see the need for prayer. And if that's the case, then he or she has to ask himself some serious questions. So in prayer, we're told in the catechism answer, we offer up our desires to God. And in so doing, we make known to him our petitions. And by by saying we make known to him, we're not saying that he doesn't know, but we're expressing our desires and petitions to him. The psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. When I was a new Christian, I thought that meant that whatever I wanted, he would give me. Well, that's not the case. What he does is he puts those holy desires in your heart. So if you delight in the Lord, if you love him through Christ, he will change your desires and make them the desires that he desires himself. In everything, Paul says, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And again, he knows exactly what we're going to pray. He ordained from all eternity the things for which we are to pray. 
But we make known to him because this is an ordinance. It is a means of worship. It's also a means of grace. His spirit uses this wonderful ordinance to infuse grace, to conform us to his will, to enable us to have intimate fellowship with him. And prayer is a very important aspect, as we've said. So we pray, and as the Catechism Answer teaches us, we pray to God and to God only. We pray to no one else, because God alone is the one to be believed in and worshipped. And since prayer is an element of worship, it is to be offered to God only. There are no other mediators. There are no other hearers of prayer. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a wonderful woman, I'm sure. She was a sinner. She's not a mediatrix. Prayer is to be made to God, and to God only. He alone is the one who is able to search the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. He can sift through our thoughts. He is the one who can hear the requests, no matter where you are, under what circumstance you offer it. He's the one who can pardon the sins, because if your sins are not forgiven, your prayers are unacceptable. He will not listen to the prayer of an un, unjustified sinner. The only prayer that he'll accept is the prayer of repentance. So he's the one who can pardon the sins, and he's the one who can fulfill the desires of all. You know, there's that song that we sing, you're coming to a king. Uh, don't let your petitions be meager. Let your petitions be extravagant, because you're coming to a king who loves to answer prayer. And he's the one who can do that. No one else can fulfill the desires of your heart. Nobody else can sanctify you or serve your eternal well-being. He will work everything together for good, your eternal good, if you love him. So we're to pray to God alone. It doesn't inform God, it doesn't change God in the slightest, but it does inform us and sanctify us. It aligns us with his will, and it is an appointed means of grace. So prayer is vital. You know, and it says, how do you escape the wrath and curse of God? due to us by reason of transgression of the law. And it says there's three special ordinances that we are to use. The word, sacraments, and prayer. If you're not praying, what that implies is that you're not escaping the wrath and curse of God. It is the lifeblood of the Christian life. We direct our prayers to any person in the Trinity, because whomever we address includes the other persons. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So you can pray to Jesus. You can pray to the Holy Spirit. That's perfectly legitimate. But it's not ordinary. The standard method of address is to God the Father, through God the Son, by God the Holy Spirit. That's the standard method. That's the way that the Father has taught us to pray, remember? For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So again, you can address any one of the persons. They are one in substance, equal in power and glory. But the standard method, the ordinary way, is to address the Father. Any questions on any of these things we've discussed? It all makes sense? Prayer, what a wonderful gift. Prayers are spiritual sacrifices. We no longer have bloody sacrifices. The blood has been shed. 
But we offer our spiritual sacrifices, and these are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. They're not acceptable if they're not through Jesus Christ. There is no prayer that reaches heaven apart from his mediation. Therefore, they're offered up to him in prayer by the worshipers. We offer them through Jesus Christ. And everything for which we pray has to be agreeable to his will. If you desire to rob a bank, you don't pray for success. That's unlawful, if you didn't know that. It has to be agreeable to his will. And we must know the promises, therefore. These things that conform to God's revealed will, the things he's shown us in his word, and this is why it's important to be familiar with God's promises. These are the things that he's pleased to fulfill, his promises. So this is one of the reasons why we always talk about the means of grace, right? The ordinary means of grace. You've probably heard that every Sunday since you've been here. Why do we talk about the ordinary means of grace? Well, because he's promised to bless these things. And if we just take him at his word and ask him to bless the things he's promised to bless, he'll do so, right? Um, If it's not appointed in his word, if it's not agreeable to his will, we have no right to think that he'll bless it in any way, shape, or form. And success is not an indication of blessing. I hope we understand that. If somebody says, well, it it works... It works. Humanly speaking, it might work for your purposes, but it doesn't work for God's purpose. We have to have his promise. So we pray for those things that conform to his revealed will. And as uh, I think it was Spurgeon talks about God's checkbook or heaven's checkbook, that you take the check of God's promise and you write it and it's good. He makes good on the check. And when we pray... And I'm going to harp on this till I draw my last breath. We pray in Jesus' name. He alone is the mediator between God and men. So when you pray, when I pray, do not close your prayer, Father, in your name. It's not in the Father's name. It's in the Son's name. It's through Jesus' mediation. It's a lazy way to end the prayer. Father, please bless our worship service. Thank you for the fellowship of the saints. In your name, amen. That's lazy. It's in Jesus' name, and we need to be specific. Jesus is the mediator. And we do this praying in his name, not simply mentioning his name as if it's some sort of charm, but we draw from his mediation our encouragement to pray. You have no access into his presence apart from Christ's mediation. You're unacceptable apart from Christ's mediation. Remember the example we gave where... The little boy goes out into the field and he picks a bunch of weeds and there's a couple of flowers in there on Mother's Day. And he brings it in all excited to give to his mom and the father looks at it and says, oh, what a wonderful thing, let me have that. And he takes it and turns around, picks out all the weeds, takes some flowers and sticks it in and gives it to the wife. And it's acceptable. And that's kind of what Jesus does in mediating for us. He takes our prayers and he makes them acceptable to the father. We mention his name because we draw encouragement from him to pray. Because our best works, the best thing you can do as a Christian is imperfect and it's defiled by sin. So only through his mediation is your prayer acceptable. In Jesus' name. Say it. Get used to saying it. Don't ever close prayer without it. 
Don't leave home without it. As we pray in Jesus' name, we draw boldness, we draw strength in prayer, and we draw our hope of acceptance in prayer again from his mediation. And the Spirit helps us to know both for whom and what and how prayer is to be made. Because the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. By nature, we have no idea. By nature, we don't know how to worship God in the way that He is to be worshipped, which is why He reveals it in His Word, which is why our worship must conform to His prescriptions, the regulative principle of worship. We've talked about that. We don't know how to worship Him. Our worship is unacceptable to Him apart from Christ. And so the Spirit helps our prayers, helps us to know for whom to pray, what to pray for, and how to do it. He's at work in our hearts, and it's not at all times, it's not at all people in the same measure, because the Spirit is absolutely sovereign, but He does work in our hearts. The only reason that you and I would ever seek the face of God in prayer is because the Spirit is prompting us to do so. That's the Holy Spirit's work. And by this work, he instills in us, his worshipers, such godly apprehensions. We apprehend the mercy of God in Christ. Affections. He draws our affections to Christ, which is not natural for sinners. And he gives us graces that are necessary. Faith, hope, love. These are the things the Spirit does for us. And so prayer is a wonderful thing. We cannot do it rightly by nature, but the Spirit helps us, the Son intercedes for us, and the Father accepts us. Any questions on this part? We all tracking? Eric? Yeah. Yeah, the question is, uh, in the Old Testament, they didn't pray in Jesus' name. And I do believe that the, that the watershed event, of course, death and resurrection, changed things. In the Old Testament, they prayed in faith in the coming Messiah. All the sacrifices, all the ceremonial law, uh, it all pointed to Christ. And so their prayers were offered looking toward the Messiah over the sacrifices Now, since Christ has died and risen again, we are to pray in his name in the post-resurrection period. We'll look at that in a minute. Um, Because, for example, we'll look at the Lord's Prayer. Jesus didn't conclude the Lord's Prayer in his name. But it was prior to the death and resurrection. And when he says, Our Father, as we'll see, there is an assumption there, an anticipation of us becoming the children of God through Christ. So we pray in his name in obedience to his command. You know, he told his disciples, pray in my name. We pray in his name in confidence on his promise. I will intercede for you. I'll make your prayers acceptable. And there is a big change between the old covenant administration and the new covenant administration. What they had then was sufficient to give them eternal salvation. It's not sufficient now. We have the New Testament clarity. 
We can pray looking back upon the cross. We can sing looking back upon the cross. And it's a privilege that none of the Old Testament saints enjoyed. They looked ahead to the Messiah to come. They were saved, no question. But we have such a wonderful privilege, which is why the least in the kingdom of God is, is, more, is greater than John the Baptist, the greatest among those born of women in the Old Testament. He was great. We're not morally better, but we are covenantally better. So yeah, great question, and I think we'll look at that a little more closely in a minute. Anybody else? Any questions? Okay. Okay, we pray for the church, obviously. We pray for the church militant. We thank God for the church triumphant. I hope you know the difference there. The church militant does not mean we all pick up swords, but it simply means the church on earth. We're still waging war with the weapons of our warfare, prayer, the church militant. We're told to pray for magistrates. Doesn't, Doesn't qualify that. The early Christians were to pray for Emperor Nero. What a tyrant. What a wicked human being. They were to pray for him. They were to pray for ministers, because ministers um, have targets on their backs. The, The forces of evil want to take out the leaders of the church, and if they can take out the leaders or deceive them or seduce them, you can see what's happening all across the country. We pray for ourselves. We pray for others. These are for those for whom we pray. Praying at all times in the Spirit, says Paul, making supplication for all the saints. We intercede for one another. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and for all, or in all who are in high positions. We pray for our governmental leaders. They need our prayers. Love your enemies. This is the hardest of all. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I recently, I was looking at uh, Corey Ten Boom's, one of her interviews yesterday. <clears throat> and she says when she was in the concentration camp that she had hatred rising up in her heart, bitterness. It was a struggle, a huge struggle. Until finally then the love of God poured forth in her heart by the Holy Spirit, she was able to pray for her enemies. I think that's probably one of the hardest things in the Christian life, apart from forgiveness. So we're to pray, we love our enemies. We're to pray for those who persecute us. These are those for whom we are to pray. We may not pray for the dead. Their final destiny was unalterably fixed at the moment of death. It's done. They're gone. They've entered eternity. We don't pray for the dead. The rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Abraham said, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, unalterable, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. It is done. So anybody who prays for the dead is doing that which is not condoned in the word of God. We don't pray for the dead. We pray for what glorifies God. We pray for the benefits of the church. We pray for what serves the saints good, but for nothing unlawful, as we said earlier. And again, this is one of the reasons why we need to know the word of God. The two questions we always ask when faced with a decision, right? Is it lawful? Is it wise? If you can't say it's lawful, you're done. If it's lawful, then you say, is it wise? When we pray, is it lawful? That's key. 
This is the confidence that we have toward him, says John, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. What's the implication? If it's not according to his will, he doesn't hear us. Your prayer is not accepted. Now, of course, God is gracious. I'm sure that when I was relatively new, maybe even now too, but relatively new Christian, I might have prayed for all kinds of weird, unlawful, wacky things. And he was gracious. We're responsible for the light we've been given. Okay? So for me to pray for something unlawful is far worse than for a child to pray for something unlawful. Um, I should know better. I should know the word. I should know what is lawful and what is not. We pray, when we come before that throne of grace, we pray sensing his majesty. And we have a deep sense of our own unworthiness. We don't deserve this privilege. Drawing near to a thrice holy God. And we pray with understanding, with faith, with sincerity. I know a woman... And she's a, she's a nice woman, but she constantly has the beads, the rosary over her hand, you know, and she walks and she'll just repeat it over and over and over again. And for some unknown reason, this is what she's been taught, they think that that's earning something with God, I suppose. It's not with understanding. It's a vain repetition. Let not your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. You have a deep sense of your own unworthiness, his infinite majesty, and you're thoughtful in prayer. There's understanding. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. There is faith. You trust in this living God. The Lord is near to all who call on him. Who? To all who call on him in truth, sincerity, you're sincere. You're not going there to try to manipulate the Lord. You're going there honestly petitioning him, seeking his will, praying for things agreeable to his revealed will, confessing your sins, thankfully acknowledging his mercies, and honoring his majesty. Any questions on for whom, what, or how? Carolyn? Mm-hmm. I've had several friends ask me to pray right. specifically for their pet. And I'm, I'm not uncomfortable with that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I felt really conflicted. And so I said, I will pray for you. You know, as you care for your pet. Because our pets don't have souls. But that doesn't exempt them from the object, being objects of prayer. No. We're told as, as saints to take care of our creatures. We're told to be tender-hearted toward our beasts. There's nothing wrong with praying for them. We don't pray for their salvation. No. No. Although. <laughs> in the new heaven and new earth, there's going to be dogs, I'm convinced. No. No. There's nothing wrong with it. 
as long as it's lawful. Now, they don't have souls. You're right. So you don't pray for their salvation. That's not, you don't pray for their understanding. You might say, well, my dog is sick. Lord, can you please bring healing to my beast? I need him for support or he needs to pull my plow or whatever the case may be. Lord, can you fix my car? Can you make my car run until I get to the gas station? The car doesn't have soul. So the Lord, you know, in his providence, he ordains all of it. Every sparrow that touches down, every hair in your head. You can pray for these things, acknowledging that this is not eternal. These are temporal benefits. We pray in the fourth petition. uh, Keep us from anything that is contrary to our temporal benefit, right? Well, I mean, it would grieve my heart. I mean, all kidding aside, it would grieve my heart if my dog died. He's going to die. It'll be grievous. So, Lord, may you let him live a long and fruitful life on this earth. I see nothing wrong with it. There's nothing in Scripture that prohibits it. Yeah. Ernie? Okay. Anybody else? Yes, Rob. For their salvation, yeah, Lord, please, will you please, because Job did that every day. He woke up every morning and offered sacrifices for his sins in case they had sinned, right? I mean, you can't confess for them, but you can ask God to bring them to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins, of course. Yes, that's right. I do that all the time, ask I, I do that at our dinner table, you know, thank you, please forgive our sins, yeah. As a representative of the family, you're petitioning God for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we know that without confession and repentance, there is no forgiveness without blood, too. So, trusting in Christ is a necessity. But you're praying and covering the family. That's appropriate. You're the priest of the home. Okay? Sins and mercy. Prayer includes confession of sins and acknowledgement of God's mercies. The the wise man says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. We're going to transgress. You and I transgress every day. And the older I get, the more keenly I feel the weakness that is in me. I transgress every day. And I think, Lord, how can you love me? You know. But he does. And that love is unwavering. But part of the expression of gratitude is that we confess our sins. And we acknowledge his mercy. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. That's, That's important. In the confessing of sins, there is a desire to forsake it. Now, you're going to struggle with a besetting sin. I am too. There are sins to which... Each one of us are prone. We have weaknesses in our character and so forth. And we're going to do it over and over again, and it's going to be awful. But our desire is to confess it and to forsake it. And hopefully over time, we'll see some progress. But if there's just confession without a desire to forsake, it's hypocritical. I hope you understand that. So we confess our sins. We acknowledge his mercy. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. There is that desire to forsake our iniquity. We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Apprehending the mercy of God in Christ, 
you recognize that he is willing and able to forgive your sins. And that's an honor to him. Far from being a plague or a burden, you might think, oh, Lord, here we go again. Please forgive me. No, it's an honor to him because you recognize that his fountain of mercy is inexhaustible in Christ. There's going to come a time when you and I will be delivered from sin and misery. We're going to be perfectly holy and happy. But until then, we have to have a life of repentance, confessing our sins. So without confession, we cannot in good conscience ask for the forgiveness of our sins. We have to be conscious and convinced of our guilt if we're to ask the sovereign for a pardon. Very important confession. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great, says David. In confessing our sins, what we do is vindicate the justice of God to whose justice we have become debtors. Lord, you are just. You're just to judge me. This is what David says. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you, Lord, may be justified in your words. When Nathan came and convicted him, the Lord is justified in condemning him. And you're blameless in your judgment. I'm confessing your perfect justice. So when we confess our sins, we're not informing him of anything, but we are vindicating his judgment. He is just. We deserve punishment. We're worthy of hell. But thank God in his mercy, he gives us Christ. When we confess, we do so with grief and hatred of our sins and with desire to forsake them. The tax collector, you remember, he was standing far off in contrast to the Pharisee. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's the kind of attitude that we bring when we confess our sins and acknowledge his mercy. It's a rich reservoir of mercy. And what's that one psalm? Um, You will draw water from the wells of salvation. This idea of taking the bucket and dipping it every day and bringing that well of that water of salvation up. It's tremendous. Any questions on sins and mercy? I know we're all rather expert at sins. John? You mean worship, family worship, or the prayer itself? Both. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, you can do family worship in a variety of ways. I know when we, in our household, especially when the kids were young, keep it short, um, we would uh, read scripture, and we would pray, and we would sing briefly. And I think the whole thing, the whole thing might have taken 10 10 minutes or 15 minutes. So again, I, I remember visiting a home, this was years and years ago, and with a family that doesn't longer tens, but he was adamant. We are reading a chapter of scripture every night. And if we miss a night, we'll read that chapter and the next, the next night. I said, are, are you kidding me? 
I mean, I would have a hard time with that, let alone your kids. And it was onerous. So you want to you want to be cognizant of the necessities and the capacities of your hearers. And with young children, they're not going to remember anything you say. But they're going to remember that we sang around the table, right? And they're going to remember that that book was open. I don't know what dad was reading, but he was reading something, and it's, it's important. So, again, gauge it toward them. If you have to have a routine, that was our routine. You might have a different one. And prayer, we'll talk about maybe a acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Acts, you know. Okay. The rule, what rule has God given for our direction in prayer? If we're going to pray, what do we do? Well, the whole word of God is of use to direct us in prayer, but the special rule of direction is that form of prayer which Christ taught his disciples commonly called the Lord's Prayer. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, as we said. The whole word of God, all 66 books, is useful in directing us in this vital Christian duty. It is true, as our first chapter tells us, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. So you might scan Scripture and find areas where this is confusing. I can't understand that. How is that going to inform me in prayer? Well, a reasonable person can gain from any text something for petition, confession, or thanksgiving. Lord, this text doesn't make any sense to me, but I thank you that you revealed it. Hopefully someday I'll understand it. (laughs) There's something in every text that a reasonable reasonable person with a due use of ordinary means can understand. These things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. The biblical doctrines help strengthen our faith, The word sanctifies and edify the soul as we pray God's words back to him. That's what we're doing. And the Lord's Prayer is a special direction because Christ taught it in answer to their request. It's a pattern. It's a pattern according to which we can make other prayers and even frame our praises. So it's a wonderful thing. But it can be used as a prayer too. We recited it. Thankfully, Don has encouraged me and I've I'm thankful for his encouragement. Uh, The first Sunday of each month, we recite the Lord's Prayer. But we have to do it with understanding, faith, and reverence. It should be called the Disciples' Prayer, I think, really. Um, Jesus had no sin, so there could be no need for him to ask for forgiveness in the fifth petition. The real Lord's prayer we know is in John 17, or it's called his high priestly prayer. That's his prayer on behalf of the church and those who would come after him. But because the Lord's prayer has been used so often and custom has established it, we use it. We understand what it is. And there's, there's differences in the Lord's prayer in Matthew 6 and Luke 11. And some have looked at that and said, okay, there you go. There's an inconsistency. The Bible's not inspired. Well... That's not true. I mean, Jesus could have said more than once, on more than one occasion, what the Lord's Prayer is. And that many believe that that's probably what happened between Matthew 6 and Luke 11. They're very, very similar if you look at them and compare them. But as a prayer, this prayer is reverent. Hallowed be thy name. It's simple, right to the point. It's concise. It's Godward. 
the first petitions have God in view, and we're only secondary. It stresses both material and spiritual needs. There we go with Carolyn's question. There are material needs. Give us our bread, our daily bread. Often the Lord's Prayer is recited mechanically. I've done this. I have to be careful when we do the reciting it out there because you, you can just get in that mode. You're not thinking. You're just kind of saying the words. You don't give any thought to it. Roman Catholics have their rosaries to repeat and Protestants have their Lord's Prayer to recite. We can both fall into that trap. They don't have a monopoly on thoughtlessness. And some have opposed the use of the Lord's Prayer precisely because it's been abused. But its abuse is no argument against using it as a prayer. It can be a wonderful prayer as long as you understand the six petitions, the preface, the conclusion, and the exposition that we have that we're going to look at in the Shorter Catechism is tremendous. It doesn't include in Jesus' name. This is Eric's question, but it does begin with our Father, which anticipates his mediation. Nobody can call upon God as their Father apart from Christ. So Jesus is preparing in that transition period his disciples. <clears throat> and later in, his, in the gospel, he does tell them to pray in my name. And post-resurrection believers, they should pray in Jesus' name. Until now, he says, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Pray in my name. You want joy, it's only through me. The disciples had made no mention of his blood, of his righteousness and imputed righteousness, of his sacrifice on the cross, his mediation, that would come. So he is preparing his disciples, he's preparing the church for this watershed event, the most significant event in the history of the world, the death and resurrection of Christ, and all the things that go along with that. And of course, that changed everything. And everything before it looked forward to that. Any questions on the rule the Lord's Prayer. We okay? All right. Oh, John? Do we find the Lord's Prayer in, in type in the Old Testament as well? Do we find the Lord's Prayer in the Old Testament? They have the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Every morning the Jew, a faithful Jew, would repeat, our, the Lord our God is one, you know. And um, I think that's probably the closest to it. Uh, I don't know if it had the specificity because they relied so heavily upon the priesthood, um, which is, again, one of the benefits that we have. He's made us a kingdom and priests to his God and Father. Everything has changed. <laughs> Public prayer. One person represents the assembly and prays on behalf of the whole. This isn't part of the question, but I think it's important. Public prayer is a unique kind of prayer. It's when one person represents the whole body. We have public prayer and worship. And there are certain guidelines for public prayer that we need to abide by. That person is representing the assembly, but the whole assembly is praying. Just like Rob said, he is representing his family. When he articulates the prayer, the whole family is praying. All of those involved join in the prayer as if it was uttered by themselves. We recognize the confusion that would reign if everybody was praying. In my charismatic background, that happened. 
We'd have worship services where you heard all kinds of things going on and none of it was intelligible. One person prays. It's done decently and in order. Conscious of the assembly, the speaker always prays in the first person plural. (laughs) I can't tell you how many times. These two things are my pet peeves. In Jesus' name and first person plural. If you're praying on behalf of an assembly, you never pray in the first person singular. Lord, I love you. I want you to bless us. No. We. Why are you leaving me out of the prayer? I want to say the amen with you. Nate? When you say public assembly, you're referring to worship. Or like, yeah, the public assembly is God's people. Anytime you are representing a group. Anytime. Anytime you are representing a group in prayer, you use the first person plural. I mean, it's, it's most... Clear in public worship, obviously. But let's say we're at a prayer meeting, you know, and it's your turn to pray. Well, you're, you're praying on behalf of the group. You're not praying individually. This is not a group of private devotions. This is public prayer. And so you're praying first person plural. You're representing me in prayer. Rob? Rob? Anytime you're representing a group before the Lord God, you use the first person plural. Because obviously you are representing a group. Now, if you're surrounded by enemies and they have a gun to your head, you're not representing the group. You're praying on behalf of yourself. Lord, please be with me. I get it. But if you're representing a group before the throne of God, you pray in the first person plural. That's a responsibility of the prayer. That's one good place. Yeah, absolutely. When you pray, it doesn't say just public worship. So we pray with and for others. And when we're called upon to represent a group publicly, when publicly I mean when others are listening, we pray in the first person plural. That's all right. Right. That's right. If you have a promiscuous society, like when I would do funerals up at Twinsburg, I'd always pray our God. I tried very carefully not to pray our Father. Right? But I always closed in Jesus' name. And the Rotary Club got mad at me for that. But, you know, it's not prayer if it's not in Jesus' name. The listeners have to give audible affirmation by together saying the amen. We testify that this is our desire and our assurance. Amen. Yes, that's my prayer. He prayed for us and I amen. I believe it. I desire it. That's why the speaker has to be careful to regulate the prayer in accord with the revealed will of God. I can't and should not offer the amen unless I concur with the whole prayer. So please, be lawful, be thoughtful, be cognizant of others when you're praying publicly. David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, that all the people said amen and praise the Lord. They offered their amen. 
That's why we should pay close attention in public prayer and guard against wandering thoughts. It's hard, but you're as responsible as I am in that prayer. (laughs) And that's why it's harder to be a listener. It's easy for me to sit there and just talk. It's hard to listen without wandering thoughts. That's a very difficult thing. Samuel Miller, thoughts on public prayer. We're almost done. He offers some frequent faults, the overly frequent use of favorite words and set forms of expression. Lord, bless us. Lord, Lord, please give me food. Lord, Lord, Lord. I thank you. Don't say these things over and over again. You know, Tim Hawkins has a joke about this. If I was to talk to Dick, Dick, can I go over your house, Dick? Can I see your thing, Dick? He wouldn't want me as his friend. Are you strange? You don't talk to somebody like that. So that's one thing. Pausing, stumbling in public prayer, revising on the spot. Oh, no, that's not what I meant, Lord. Oh, Lord, I think. And I've done that. I got roasted at home for doing that in public prayer. It causes pain (laughs) to every fellow worshiper. Jumbled aspects. If you're going to pray acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. If you're going to pray, be clear and orderly. Don't jumble them all up. Nobody knows where you are in the prayer. Going into extreme detail. Lord, please be with Bonnie in her knee operation when they take the tendon and they move it over to this side. I mean, that's too much detail, right? Uh, Going so long in prayer. I mean, some people pray so long. And I know when my kids were younger, they asked him, what does your dad do? He talks a lot. Okay, well, I get it. The pastoral prayer is supposed to be a little bit longer, but to extend prayer unnecessarily is a fault, and we have to be careful. What do they say? The mind can only handle what the bottom can endure, and that's important. So any questions on public prayer? John? Um, Many of us go to all sorts of different churches, visiting relatives, all sorts of different situations. How would you advise... How should we participate or not participate in all sorts of various stripes of types of public worship? Everything from evangelical that's just public worship, no, evangelical that's not formed to, to basically like a near heretical universalist prayer. Well, if you can't abide by the prayer, don't offer the amen. You can't say amen, right? If the most of the prayer is, is lawful and there's one aspect of it that you think, man, that's way out, don't offer the amen. The Lord's not going to hold you responsible if you're sitting in public in assembly and somebody's praying publicly and they say something heretical. You just can't say amen, right? It's sort of like you can't participate in the Mass. If you go with a friend to their Roman Catholic Church, you can observe and you can be cordial and polite and don't cause trouble. But you can't take the Mass. You're a Protestant. You can't do that. You can't offer the Amen if they're praying to Mary or something. So you just have to be cognizant of what you can do and what you can affirm. You know, I went to Debbie's um, dad's funeral years ago, and um, we wanted to support the family. But the priest did so many things that I couldn't concur with. I couldn't say Amen. I couldn't participate, really. I was an observer for the most part. Okay, um, well, Rob, one more. (laughs) 
good. Talk to my kids, will you? All right, well, let's, let's pray. <laughs> Father, we're thankful for the gift of prayer, this wonderful ordinance that you've appointed, and this means of grace and fellowship with you. We thank you for the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who makes us acceptable in your sight and the help of the Holy Spirit. Please be with us now and prepare us for worship, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.